Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. It's Ro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 Lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Today, we're going to be talking with Tony Snow in an interview that we shared about a year ago. This episode is particularly interesting because we're talking about some history pieces that happened prior to colonization. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Prior to all the bad stuff that happened with residential schools, the Indian Act... This is Canadian history, but one of the stories that's untold, or rather relatively unknown, is how on Treaty 7 lands, one of the nations had a positive relationship with the early missionaries. Tony tells that story and also breaks down some insight on a new initiative, fits fittingly with faith in a fresh vibe, an urban indigenous church plant here in the city. It's going to give us a preview of that in this part one. Part two is going to come up as we dive into another important topic on reconciliation and racism in the church. So that's going to be season two. Let's jump into this part one with Tony Snow. We're going to pick up the conversation as we just get to know Tony a little bit more and chat about his um, master program. And it's not just any master program. It's been designed to accommodate to reflect, to incorporate more Indigenous spirituality. So have a listen. Welcome, Tony. Tony's waving. We're on the radio, Tony. <laughs> you're also a student. You're you're working towards ordination, right? Yep. In the um, United Church? Yep. I'm doing a, a master's in uh, theology at the Vancouver School of Theology. And it's a separate process with the UCC in ordination, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I do that, and I do a training program with the um, Sandy Soto. The um, Sandy Soto Spiritual Center is the native ministry component, so they work with the Anglican Church and the United Church and other denominations. They, they would like to be interdenominational or multi-denominational in, in their approach, to have people come in and take courses and be part of that our learning circles, so they're gearing more towards that focus and I think that's good because there's a there's room for all types of experience and understanding and I think the more that we share the more that we dialogue there's a better chance that we'll gain some better understanding of one another do you think that you're finding balance in your learning an approach that's an indigenous contextualization to theology I think that's um the main driver behind that is my father's work in the uh-huh. um, United Church. He was the ordained, ordained United minister, Church minister in uh, 1963 and had worked with the church for a number of years, eventually uh, developing a uh, ecumenical conference that we had. And part of that work involved um, a split from the uh, United Church of Canada into an Indigenous ministry. So we had Indigenous presbyteries that came out of that in the 1980s. Mm. And those presbyteries uh, sought to find a better way of defining our Indigenous theology and our Indigenous practice. A lot of the uh, work, the legwork that I thought had been done during that time um, had not really been done because we had a lot of uh, sort of similar practice with sort of an indigenous label stuck Mm. on top of it versus Mm -hmm. an actual 
melding of indigenous practice into a Christian context, which is my history and, and how we approach from the Stony Reserve, how we approach Christianity. So the, the effect of having a uh, imperfect system going into seminary and having to deal with the, the struggles of this is not the institution that we thought it was, and this is not the mm. way that we had envisioned the work had been continuing since my father's time. So my father passed away in 2006. We started going into the seminary and, and to different work uh, in 2017, 2016, 2017. And in there, seeing that there's a lot of work that had to be done to bring the church up to speed on what had been taught back in the 1970s. All the work that had been done to uh, bring Indigenous thinking and Indigenous theology, Indigenous custom and traditions into that Christian context and having it understood and respected and to develop into an Indigenous church had not been done. And so now coming at it again, now being in this process three years, uh, to now start addressing those issues. Uh, we're doing that on a systemic level and on a, mm. we're having our national indigenous uh, spiritual gathering in August where this will come up again. We sent letters off to the moderator from the students of Sandy Soto talking about the indigenous sustainer, the, um, the guide by which we will be ordained and the flexibility and understanding of that. Because if, um, say we did I, did, I just recently finished a course on Paul. And that course, uh, in my thinking, should be on par with the level of learning to do a sweat. Or hmm. learning that, that type of um, understanding of, of both traditions being something of value and having to uh, uh, live in a system that recognizes one but not the other. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a constant um, challenge there. So you're not advocating for a dualistic system. You're uh, looking for a, uh, would syncretic be the, the right word for this? Uh, an approach of, of theology that's, that's melding the two? I think there's a, a negative connotation around the idea of melding yeah. uh, in that um, may lose some essence of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is most prevalent when we did um, a, a communion uh, at Sandy Soto mm-hmm. with the um, uh, one of the, our elders with the church. And he was an Anglican, uh, I think it was a deacon. And, and he, uh, when he did the, when he performed the, the sacrament, he smudged the elements and then he delivered the elements to, to people. And that, to me, really explains the way that we understand our former Christianity, that there is a uh, discrete and um, complete process in the idea of the smudge and what that ceremony entails and how we perform that and the respect for that space of that. And then the sacraments or the communion and all the elements of that and how we perform that. So each stands on its own as a particular type of ceremony and that the two together 
complement one another, mm -hmm. but neither they, do they erase. I've seen instances mm -hmm. in some uh, traditions mm -hmm. where they've tried to change the way that uh, we use particular elements, mm -hmm. and that really oversteps the bounds of what the respect of each discrete component is. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. that is challenging. So it, uh, it's not an attempt to uh, create a third way. It's an attempt to preserve both. So is it both and? Yeah, I think so. I think it, it, it really tries to find a space where we are given consideration to different perspectives and to allow them to interact. Uh, I want to take us to the story of how Christianity, how the gospel came into your lands for the first time as well, because I think it's a fascinating story, and it's one that... Uh, is it, it goes against some of the common paradigms uh, that we might think of of Christianity uh, into Indigenous culture. Okay. Um, so my uh, background is from the Stony Reserve, the uh, Nakota people, the Assiniboine tongue. Um, we were in the area of the uh, Banff uh, region when we were uh, first interacting with the Europeans and with the um, explorers that came out back in the 1690s. And so the first explorations from Henry Kelsey and from others that came after that, Anthony Henday and, and Robert Rundle, um, Palliser and, and different groups, they had all, to go through the mountains, they had to meet with the Stonies and they had to uh, interact with them. The Stonies were always a very open and uh, generous people and dealing with uh, different strangers and people coming through their lands. They always helped them to get from one end to the other hmm. and had uh, a good reputation in and amongst the uh, neighboring communities. Our history with the Methodist Church uh, stems from an experience of that exploration from the uh, Robert Rundle who came through in the 1840s and had uh, gone through um, the Morley area into the Banff area, or they, I think they came from the, the northern part of that. And so they uh, brought with them a missionary who had been trained uh, in the east, and his name was Henry Bird. He was taken under the wing of a hmm. benefactor from Boston and trained as a Methodist missionary. So he was a uh, Anishinaabe uh, Methodist traveler. And so, um, and spoke several different languages, including Ojibwe, Cree, um, Greek, <laughs> Latin, all these sort of, and uh, English. He uh, came out, and when he presented the, um, the Bible to our people in Morley, he told them, um, here is a good book, and take from it what you will. And he gave them the teachings of the gospel and he gave them sort of the instruction that it'll be useful if you go through the stories and understand how this applies to you and when you can use it and very much took it on as a part of the oral tradition so within that 40 years of 1840 up until the time that the uh, McDougal family or other missionaries started coming through again um, it had been so ingrained in the community and in the the way of teaching that it became part of our ceremonies, became part of our way of understanding the world. And 
by the time the missionary um, George McDougall came through, they observed, and this is written on one of their plaques out there on the site at the McDougall uh, Memorial Church, that the Stonies were already observing the Sabbath back in 1877, I think it was. So there's a strong connection between Christianity and the uh, Stony people and how we practice in our particular way with our particular uh, ceremonies. So we always refer to Jesus in our prayers, and we, always, we have we at one time had uh, various different hymns in Stony. We had uh, various translations. If you read some of the books about the Stony people from uh, Central United Church at the river they gathered, uh, it talks about the uh, Reverend Robert Rundle delivering uh, services in Assiniboine and even conducting a marriage in Assiniboine. This is back in the mid-1800s. So there was a, a much better relationship than we see today. After uh, Confederation, after the uh, advent of the Indian Act, um, when everything became bureaucratized and the Duncan Report came out and said that we have to assimilate the indigenous people, mm -hmm. that's when we started getting more stringent and clamping down on uh, indigenous teachings and customs. And, and so what happened to us eventually, what happened to everyone else eventually happened to us through that process. I think it's fascinating that prior to uh, the crown coming in, uh, there was this beautiful expression of, of unity uh, in diversity. Mm -hmm. It was deeply I think it was important because it was something that they took on themselves and it's something that mm -hmm. they uh, accepted and, and uh, promoted within our own culture mm -hmm. and that it wasn't something that was ever sort of forced upon us. If you look at a lot of the communities around here that were affected by uh, the uh, Roman Catholic or the Anglican churches, they were subjected to that and they were forced to, mm -hmm. um, to become converted to that. There's a lot of resentment around it. There's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain around that. Whereas in our stony way, the Methodism was sort of inherent in, in the way that we see the world. I'm, I'm curious, just at the top of my head, to what extent was that uh, a stony approach or a Methodist approach? Or how much of that relied on, on just the uh, capability of both stony culture and, and bird, was it? Yeah. I think there's a, a great deal of um, connection between those inter-cultural um, indigenous group meetings mm -hmm. that really influenced the way that that information was brought in and accepted. Yeah, the first Be one. Yeah. yeah, because when we look at the way that Henry Bird brought the, the word of the Bible to our community there is a uh, reflection upon that to say that Henry Byrd was enacting our book of Acts. He mm -hmm. was sort of the, the precursor of those lessons of the disciples that came to us, brought us the word of God. And so now for us, as we live out that experience of the knowledge of Jesus and the knowledge of those teachings and the knowledge of, that, of his teachings that he brought to the, the world, that we then have an experience of we are writing our New Testament as we live out these lessons. I think it's fascinating as well that 
the work that you are trying to do right now in church planting is almost a callback. It's like the history sort of, there's this big piece in between uh, 1860 and today, and, and you're calling back to this other ancient time before uh, when there was that expression of gospel in, in unity and diversity. Uh, would that be an accurate portrayal of what you're... I think so. I think coming to the church now as it is, coming to the United Church as it is a uh, more open and inclusive and very liberal type of uh, environment um, in theory, that that's the kind of work that um, we had had as a community, as a culture before this. We had in our teachings traditions around different types of genders, different um, understandings about sexuality, different understandings about the roles of men and women, different understandings about um, the type of society that we wanted. And so coming from a matriarchal society, it's a very different sort of a flip of what we have here today Mm -hmm. and how we live out that understanding in those teachings um, really affect how we approach these environments today. And so with the uh, type of work that's being done with the um, urban indigenous circle, we want to bring that traditional understanding into this uh, relation that we have now with a uh, environment where we have many different types of Um, Indigenous people from various communities and various stages of understanding about their own communities, given the history that has gone on. And so we want to have a type of environment where people can come to learn, people can um, teach or be able to practice their traditions in the way that they were taught, and to have Mm -hmm. an open and free space where they are given respect to that diversity that they existed with before and that here we are trying to reinforce. And I think that that, um, to a great deal, came from the uh, ecumenical conference and and the lessons that we learned around that, where it's a land-based approach, a land-based of um, practice that we engaged with the world as it is, the material world and the, the conditions that we live under, but also to tear apart those filters of control, oppression, colonialism, in order to find a space where we are allowed to be. This uh, church plant idea, uh, what is emerging, you've shared now uh, part of why it's necessary and why do the work in terms of holding and creating space uh, for Indigenous people. Um, Some will ask what... What does this look like pragmatically? You know, what, what, what does it look like? What do gatherings look like? Uh, can you shed some light on, on, on what a gathering might look like? What do you envision and what you've already done? I think in large part, um, an open space, an understanding of um, the people, especially in our environment, probably the church is not an ideal place to have it because people are not always mm. amenable mm-hmm. to a church environment and sure. they have had very bad experiences with yeah. it. So don't feel that they can be included in that type of activity. Um, but to find a way to uh, reinforce the message that this is a church that actually is doing the work that needs to be done on ter- in terms of reconciliation and in reparation and in development of a better understanding and in actually doing the actions 
of a uh, community builder rather than to be um, sort of the one-off, you can use our space, but we're not going to uh, ever sort of condone what you're doing there. <laughs> so that, that type of uh, ability for this church to say, okay, we embrace this type of activity. We understand the need for this space and what it um, contextualizes. And we respect that there may be boundaries within that, but that um, we want to participate in any way that we can. We want to be uh, helping to facilitate a better understanding through this and through this engagement that we can give back some of what we've taken, but also we can kind of move forward together. That didn't answer your question about what it looks like. <laughs> Do you want to share what, uh, how the gatherings might look? I, I think people would be just curious of, of how this is different or the same practices or... Yeah, and I think adaptability is, is most important. I think in terms of space and space requirements, uh, a lot of churches that I've been to, especially within the United Church, have put up all these roadblocks of um, no-scent policies and, and different Ooh. things where they don't want us to be doing smudging, they don't want us to be doing certain types of ceremonies and that sort of thing. Um, but in order to practice as we will and to... Uh, be remain faithful to the teachings that we have been given. Um, we have uh, particular um, requirements around uh, how we want to engage with one another and how we want to create an open space, circle or other type of uh, gathering spaces uh, to be able to share knowledge. And at times it'll be uh, a lecture, it'll time it'll be a, a special speaker, at times it'll be just the ceremony. And to um, be able to commune with one another. This is kind of, in our teaching, if we were to go sit with an elder, you would basically show up and, and be there for most of the day, seven, eight hours, listening. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the environment of, people talk about slow, slowing things down. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is normal. For us, in our uh, particular ceremonies, um, a funeral takes four days to do and requires the whole community to take part. And that's the type of activity and, and understanding of, of space that we have, that uh, we are not discrete elements, but we are part of an ecosystem. Two, two more questions. One, what is the dream? Do you have a picture of what you want to see has has the lord granted you a vision of what this urban indigenous church plant is to be any other question <laughs> <laughs> yeah we could skip that one <laughs> no i think that it, it's interesting i mean this yeah. is a very personal sort of um, mm -hmm. reflection on mm. uh, this is the type of work that my dad would be doing mm. this is the type of work that uh, he never got to do because of the uh, inherent uh, racism and challenges of the environment that he was placed into and what made him ultimately um, break away from the church. Mm. And so now to come back and sort of repair those relationships and to find a meaningful space for Indigenous people uh, to be able to be heard, to be able to uh, practice freely, to be respected, um, to me, uh, follows along the lines, I've always said that, we follow along the lines of what happened for the um, 
queer church in Calgary under the United Church. That had a lot to do with the um, uh, development of a space. And over time, I think three years they took to find uh, a following and to uh, build their own environment. So now they have an office space that they use for that. That's kind of where we're heading with this idea and to find our own um, individual space. And depending on the number of people that are interested in coming forward, we'll continue to build on what we can and to, uh, I think, expand as, as hopefully we would be more productive, I think. We want to do things that are meaningful for people. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work that I'm doing lately is to address things like the missing and murdered women, mm-hmm. uh, to address the uh, Indigenous Day and to talk about um, Orange Shirt Day in the residential schools, also to talk about some of the issues that are affecting us now, which are domestic violence, addictions, um, a lot of the work around uh, our fractured communities and our uh, intergenerational trauma and violence mm-hmm. that happen, and to um, try to address some of those um, things that have corrupted the way that we see our traditions and have, that don't allow us to, to practice because of uh, particular uh, issues that have come up in our history and to try to reclaim that history so that we are mm-hmm. able to uh, follow in what we were meant to be doing. There's always a prophecy that came from our one of our young people on our reserve talking about um, having passed away at one point. Um, so he was on the table and had had a vision of uh, being taken up to the Creator. And one of the things that the, they asked him, or the Creator asked him was, what have you done with the stories that I gave you? What mm-hmm. have you done with your language? Mm-hmm. What have you done with your songs that you that I gave you? And to be um, sort of mindful that we have gifts as well. Just as we have the Hebrew teachings that were put down in the Bible, we were given teachings. We were given a, a way of respecting the world and understanding the world. And we need to honor that. And so by this... Uh, process, hopefully to find a way of balance that will allow us to do that. I want to thank Tony for joining me. There's another interview waiting in the wings. We talk a lot about decolonizing the Christian faith in the next episode. That's an important piece when it comes to reimagining faith in a fresh vibe. I like the end of that interview where There is a piece of that imagination of what it means to look through a different set of lenses at the world and at your faith. I appreciate Tony and his work right now during the pandemic. Many of us are working a lot more than we used to, and Tony for sure is very active connecting churches back to the reservation at Morley. Look us up for the next episode yet again in this season two. Check it out. It's up next.